morning, everybody. Oh, that sounded good. There's more people inside. See what a little cold air will do for you. We should have prayed for the people that are going to be in the second service outside. I guess I'll have to preach a little bit more hot air out there, huh, just to keep them warm. All right. Well, welcome to our uh, continuing series on the book of Hosea. Uh, a study that has really been challenging me and understanding the importance of this book and what it has to say to us. Where have we been so far? Well, let's just pick up one major theme that runs through uh, the book, and that is this theme of repentance. For example, in Hosea 3.5, we looked a bit at this verse. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. That's about repentance. That's the vision of what Hosea sees for the future of this people that are lost in idolatry and they're soon going to be lost in exile. There's a day coming when they will return and seek the Lord. And of course, this is our image for the idea of repentance. It's turning. It's acknowledging that we've been going in the wrong direction and uh, writing that course. And in turning, it's turning away from the direction we've been going and turning back to the Lord. And both of those are in that Hosea 3, 5 verse, uh, as in many other places in this uh, little prophetic book. So we want to pick up in chapter 5 and get into chapter 6 today. And uh, not surprisingly, we're going to talk about repentance again. Because that is uh, uh, what the focus is here. And I want to think about true repentance. Repentance is turning, turning back, seeking the Lord. Uh, but let's intensify our study a little bit, starting at verse 11 of chapter 5. Ephraim is oppressed. Remember, Ephraim is an alternate name for Israel, the northern kingdom. Ephraim is oppressed, trampled in judgment, intent on pursuing idols. I am like a moth to Ephraim, like rot to the people of Judah. And that verse indicates what you see in a number of places, that there's a problem in Israel, the northern tribes, but there's a problem in Judah as well. It's going to take longer for judgment to play out in Judah, but it's coming also. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his sores, then Ephraim turned to Assyria and sent to the great king for help. But he is not able to cure you, not able to heal your sores. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a great lion to Judah. I will tear them in pieces. I will carry them off with no one to rescue them. 
Then I will return to my lair until they have borne their guilt and seek my face. In their misery, they will earnestly seek me. And then chapter 6, there's a change of voice here, and I think it's Hosea speaking for the people. So they're earnestly going to seek the Lord, and here's giving voice to what they're going to be saying. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love, and here it's, we're back to our Hebrew word hesed again. Your love is like the morning mist like the early dew that disappears. Therefore, I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. Then my judgments go forth like the sun. For I desire hesed, not sacrifice. And knowledge of God, or acknowledgement, as NIV says, knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. True repentance. Let's look at these uh, really three sections here that stand out. The first part is the, the coming judgment on Israel. What an image here, huh? Yahweh is a lion. And the lion is going to show his fangs to Israel and to Judah, although there's going to be a time lapse between the two. Yahweh is a lion, and the lion will bring judgment on the tribes for their idolatry, for their turning away from the Lord, from all the attendant uh, immorality that has come through Baal worship and the, the fertility cults. Yahweh will show himself to be a lion. And he will do so because uh, these people are stubborn. Remember, we looked at uh, just briefly at those verses last week in chapter 4 where it says that uh, the Lord says that the Israelites are stubborn like a stubborn heifer. Uh, Arlen talked to me uh, last Sunday about uh, some heifers he remembers from the old days on the farm. We shared some stories. Uh, they'll go just about anywhere but what you want them to go. Uh, Israel is stubborn. Sin is stubbornness. Now you know that from your own life, don't you? If, if you're honest, 
You know that there are many times in your life when you are following a course of behavior that is contrary to what's good for you and what pleases the Lord. And you do it anyway. What's going on with that? Well, a lot of what it's about is stubbornness. It's the attitude that says, I'm going to do what I want to do, regardless. And this is where Israel is. And the only thing that's going to break that is God coming after them like a lion and tearing the nation to pieces. Now, that's not... In a way, that's not a view that we want to have of God, right? I mean, that's off-putting, and especially in our age, we've gotten away from the notion of God as the, as the judge of all the earth. That, that puts a lot of people off. But we need to understand that from a biblical perspective, judgment comes on people who are stubborn. And that helps us to get in touch with who we are. It's only God coming as a lion. It's only this severe judgment, which is going to be terrible. I mean, the Assyrians are going to come and gobble up that northern kingdom. And the Assyrians are one of the most violent and mean-spirited of all the ancient empires. Uh, But it's going to be that alone which is going to shake some sense into Israel. Because they are like the stubborn heifer. The reality is that for them and for us as well, uh, we really need to come to the end of our rope. It's when we come to the end, it's when all other hopes fail that we turn back to the Lord. I mean, there's an irony here about the the stubbornness of Israel. Did you pick it up as we read it? Chapter 5, verse 13. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his sores, because The Lord says, I'm not just a lion. I'm like a moth that comes in and chews away the fabric. And I am like rot, like gangrene to this people. But verse 13 says, when Ephraim saw his sickness, when Judah saw his sores, what happened? Then Ephraim turned to Assyria? Are you kidding me? They think there's help in Assyria? Assyria is going to destroy them. But in their stubbornness, rather than seek the Lord, they'll try anything else, no matter how dangerous. How like you and me, huh? So God is going to take away all other hopes and ultimately, the promise here, which, which hasn't been fulfilled yet as far as I can see, but 
But the promise is ultimately that the nation will turn back to the Lord. Verse 15 says, I will return to my lair until they have borne their guilt and seek my face in their misery. They will earnestly seek me. That's his desire from the beginning. I think Paul uh, really understood what was going on. <clears throat> Romans 2.4, it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's God's kindness. Behind God the lion <laughs> is this kindly heart that desires the best for his people, but he understands that only the severest kind of discipline will break through their stubbornness. Yahweh is a lion. But then immediately, chapter 6 swings to a different outlook. Uh, chapter 6 picks up on this idea that in their misery they will earnestly seek me, and, and so Hosea gives voice to the repentant Israel. Come, let us return to the Lord. Why? Because Yahweh will raise us up. In other words, judgment is not the last word. We've said this before. Judgment for the people of God is the second last word. <laughs> it's never the last word. Now you say, is it never the last word for anybody? Well, yeah, it, it may be. That's the mysterious of, uh, thing of God's sovereignty giving us a measure of freedom so that in the end it's possible for people to say no to God. That is, that's the solemn possibility. So that while judgment is not the last word from God's standpoint, we in effect can make it the last word. I think it was something like that that lay behind the, the interesting statement that Dallas Willard made some years ago when he was asked uh, about uh, who, who would get to heaven, who would be in heaven, something like that. His response was, uh, I guess as many as can stand it. And, and I thought about that a lot. I, th I think what he's getting at is that there are people in their stubbornness, who refuse to repent, and if they were to be transported to heaven, they wouldn't want to be there. They haven't wanted God in their lives forever, and they don't want Him for eternity. But from God's standpoint, judgment is not the last word, it's the second last word. Judgment has a purpose of bringing people to repentance so that God's blessing might be poured out upon them. And so in these verses, we have this great assurance. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to know him as surely as the sun rises, God will save his people. It's a beautiful, beautiful image, isn't it? 
As surely as the sun comes up, so surely will God bind up his people and save them. He will come as the winter rains and the spring rains, which especially in a a semi-arid land like Palestine is just so essential. You've got to get those rains because the rest of the year you don't get them. But you get those winter rains, then you get the spring rain, and it's enough to get the the barley and the wheat up and to have a harvest. God will come. He will bless his people like the winter and the spring rains. And he will surely do it as surely as the sun rises. What will happen to Israel? Well, a resurrection. Isn't that what's being talked about here? It's very striking. Verse 2. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. That's that's resurrection imagery there. Very striking. Now, this, this is where I've been seeing, the way I'd never seen before, the importance of Hosea as part of the Old Testament canon and the impact that he had on other of the prophets. So, you'll remember uh, perhaps Ezekiel's vision of the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel chapter 37. Now, Ezekiel comes after Hosea, uh, 150 years. Uh, Ezekiel knows that the northern kingdom is already gone. The Assyrians took them off. He also has lived to see the Babylonians come in and overrun Judah, the southern kingdom, uh, destroy Jerusalem, sack the temple, burn the temple, take the treasures of the temple off to Babylon uh, along with uh, thousands of exiles. Ezekiel is one of the exiles. He's living in Babylon when he gives his prophecies. So 150 years later, he's seen the demise of the north. Now he's living in what looks to be the demise of Judah as well. And he has this vision. And the Lord says, what do you see? He says, I see this valley filled with bones. And they're dry. They're dead. And the Lord says to him, I want you to prophesy to those bones and prophesy to the wind to come and blow on these bones. Now in Hebrew, the word for wind and spirit is the same word. So that's being played on in Ezekiel 37. So prophesy, God says, to the wind spirit. Come blow on these bones that they may live. And, and so he prophesies, and the bones become, start to come together. And, and, uh, and then they take on flesh, and they stand up a great army. And the Lord says to Ezekiel, these bones represent the house of Israel. It's dead, and people say there's no hope. But this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring life to my people. Resurrection, the resurrection of Israel, the resurrection of 
Judah. And as we've seen in Hosea, the bringing together of both those peoples under David, their king, the Messiah. So as I looked at this, I thought, you know, the later prophets are reading Hosea. And they're thinking about what he said. But you know, it's not, just, it's not just the Old Testament prophets that read Hosea. It's, it's the New Testament apostles who read Hosea as well. Look at this from Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, I declare unto you the gospel that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now, the scriptures for Paul are the Old Testament. Right? That's all they have at that point. So Paul is saying that according to the Old Testament scriptures, the Messiah was buried and rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. But here's the thing. This passage in Hosea is the only passage in the Old Testament that mentions a resurrection on the third day. It's the only passage. Now you say, well, Paul must not have been a very good biblical scholar because because Hosea is talking about the nation being raised up after three days, not about Jesus. Well, this is where we need to put on our our understanding caps a little bit better. We need to realize that from the perspective of the apostles of Jesus, when they looked at his life, they saw that his life was a reworking of the history of Israel, what the scholars call a recapitulation of the history of Israel. Or to say it a different way, They looked at Jesus and they said, Jesus is the one true Israelite. He represents the people. You see these parallels all over the place. You know, Israel came out of Egypt and they spent 40 years in the wilderness where God tested them to see if they could be a faithful people. They didn't do very well in the test, right? But then Jesus came along, and at the beginning of his ministry, he was led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tested for 40 days. But the parallel is very clear. And of course, he comes out of the test perfected and strengthened because he's the true Israel. And with that kind of an analogy, you can see how Paul could look at this promise made to the nation to be raised up on the third day and look at what happened in Jesus and say, you know, that's, that's the beginning and that's the basis of the ultimate resurrection of the nation. It's the resurrection of Jesus himself. Yahweh will raise us up. And indeed, he will raise us up as well if we are believers in Jesus and followers of him. Well, now we need to look at those last verses from 4 down to 6 of chapter 6. In the light of all this, let's talk a little bit more about true repentance. 
The Lord says, what can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love, and I pointed out that that, that word is this word hesed again, right? It's this idea of, I've translated a covenant faithfulness, loving loyalty. What can I do with you, God says? Your hesed is like the morning mist. Earlier this week, we had, uh, we had a number of misty, foggy mornings, didn't we? And once the sun gets up, it pretty well burns that stuff away. But, uh, uh, so, the, so the mist is an interesting image. Once again, in a semi-arid land like Palestine, where the air is so dry already, you can imagine how the sun getting up just cuts through that stuff and it disappears. And the Lord says... This is what your loyalty is like, Israel. You talk a good game, but it's not there. So Israel comes out of Egypt, comes to Mount Sinai. God gives them his covenant, his law. And what do they say? All that the Lord has said we're going to do. Right. Your hesed is like the morning mist that disappears. But there's no substitute for hesed. Verse 6, key verse here. The Lord says, I desire mercy, and that's the word hesed again. I desire hesed, not sacrifice. And I desire the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Mercy. Covenant loyalty. Allegiance to the Lord. That's more important than offering sacrifices. Apparently they were offering the sacrifices. They were sacrificing to Baal, but they were sacrificing to Yahweh as well. They were observing the feast days and the Sabbath days to some extent. Offering burnt offerings for the forgiveness of sins. But the Lord says, I desire hesed and I desire people who actually know who I am. And you can do the sacrifice stuff. You can do the formalities of religion and not know who the Lord is. It's very interesting, not just were the the New Testament apostles, people who reflected on Hosea, or the later Old Testament prophets. You know who else, obviously, read and thought about Hosea? The greatest of all the prophets. The Messiah himself. You remember that story about uh, the calling of the disciples? There's a number of stories, but the one where, where Jesus called a man named Matthew to come and follow him, Now Matthew, quite distinct from the other apostles, Matthew 
was a tax collector. Tax collectors weren't well regarded by the Israelites by and large, particularly by the religious leaders in Israel because they, uh, they worked for the Romans, so they were seen to be betrayers of <clears throat> nationalism, and uh, they often were extortionists, uh, uh, taking more than they should have, so there was a lot of corruption that went on in the collection of the taxes. Uh, But the fact that they liked taxes, I, I guess, would suggest that they were Democrats, the tax collectors, right? I'm not sure about that. but And I would guess, then, that the people that opposed them were Republicans. It's just kind of the way I'm reading it, right? So, so Jesus, who had already a number of apostles following him uh, who were Republicans invited this tax-collecting Democrat to join the group. And that upset a lot of people. Particularly a number of the religious leaders because they, they put tax collectors in the same category as prostitutes, right? Because you have that phrase, tax collectors and sinners, and the sinners are the prostitutes. So they came to Jesus who not only had the affrontery to invite this tax-loving Democrat into his circle, but they even had a party to celebrate it, and they invited other Democrats to the party. And they said to Jesus, or to his disciples, actually, they didn't actually ask him, but they said to the disciples, uh, why is it that your master has time for tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus says, responds, he hears of it, he responds, well, the sick, the healthy don't need a physician, it's the sick who need a physician. But, but then he takes a step further, and what does he say? He says, go and learn what this means. And then you know what he quotes? He quotes this verse, Hosea, to these people who are, who are religious and they're students of the law. And he says, go and learn what Hosea is talking about. You pompous people, you unmerciful people, I desire mercy. Mercy even to these tax collectors. Mercy to the sinners. And unless we understand that hesed means loyalty to the Lord 
But that loyalty then plays out, and knowledge, acknowledgement of God, it plays out in this way that we become like him who exercises kindness and mercy to sinners. I mean, here's the problem, friends, as I see it, just to keep this a bit contemporary here. Christians today in America, specifically evangelical and fundamentalist Christians, do not have a reputation for mercy. They have a reputation for being angry and hard-edged. And I think Jesus would say to us exactly what he said to those Pharisees. Go and learn what Hosea is talking about. Listen to God when he says, I desire mercy. And that leads me to one other thing here too. What Israel forgot. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Acknowledgement of God, not burnt offerings. I think Israel slipped into the same sort of thing that their pagan neighbors slipped into. And that was the idea that religious obligation is like a deal that we strike with God or the gods. The gods are seen to be kind of fickle and arbitrary, but they can be handy to have them around if you can keep them on your side. So what you try to do then is to keep the gods happy, and you do that by offering sacrifices and giving offerings of various types. So you really strike up a bargain. The bargain is we give this to God because he wants it and in the hopes that God will then give to us, give us protection and provision and, you know, the rains when we need them and all that stuff. That's how, that's how the, the pagan religions work. The problem is that too many of us have that same notion of relationship with God. It's like a bargain we're trying to work. God, I'll do this for you if you do that for me. In its extreme form, it shows up today in what's called the health and wealth gospel. Right? You, you plant a, a seed of faith with the expectation that you'll get it back with interest. And, and then if you see that working, then you give a little bit more and you get even more back in interest. That's the way health and wealth teaching works. But many Christians who don't endorse health and wealth still have that kind of a bargaining notion with God. The Lord says, I'm not interested in the sacrifices. Now, that's not absolute. Sacrifices are something he commanded. But but what, he say, what the verse is saying is we're not interested in sacrifices apart from a heart which seeks to know God and to be like God and to reflect his character into the world. 
Let's make a deal? No, let's not make a deal. Uh, God, people sometimes do that with God, and God sometimes graciously responds. <laughs> but even if he does, if we grow in the knowledge of God, we ought to move past doing deals with God. Let us seek <clears throat> the Lord. There's no substitute for loyalty to him. Hesed. There is no substitute for giving our energy to knowing who he is. And when we do that, when we press on to know him, then the promise is as surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. Friends, that's what we need. That's what our churches need in America. That's what our congregation needs. That's what I need in my heart. I need the spring rains, right? And, and I don't have to make a deal with God to do it. It is his nature to be gracious. And so the encouragement is, let's turn back again. One thing we're learning in Hosea is repentance isn't a once and done. You didn't just repent 20 years ago and that was all you needed. We need to repent every day. Every day we turn back to him. Every day we say, Lord, I want to be characterized by fidelity and faithfulness to you. I want your character to shine through my life to other people so that I can be loving and merciful toward them. And I want to know who you are. That's what he desires for you and for me. Let's pray. God, thank you for these remarkable promises and the beautiful images that you indeed will come to us like the spring rains that bring life, that bring fruitfulness. As surely as the sun rises, you will come and bless your people if we can but turn to you and give up our stubbornness and our willfulness and our desire to have our own ways. So this morning, Lord, we want to open our hearts to you. Will you come to us? Will you pour out your blessing on Grace Bible Church on the church in America, on the church worldwide, Lord. May it be a time of great turning to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.